Number one, absolutely, as as you have done so, take charge of your health. It's your body. You've only got one body and take care of it and advocate for it. And as a subset under that, I think it's really important to do your own research so that you know what to expect. Does, Does the diagnosis, use your intuition. Hi, everybody. I'm Diane Gilman, formerly the Gene Queen from QVC HSM, but now the proud host of my own podcast, Too Young to Be Old. <laughs> Today, we've got Susan Salinger, and this is so topical, especially at this time of year when everybody seems to get sick. Susan wrote a book called Sidelined How Women Can Navigate a broken healthcare system. And when I tell you my stories about the healthcare system, you will not believe them. And do I think they would have happened to a man? I don't think so. So, Susan, welcome. And I need to ask you just very quickly, how did you come to write this book, Sidelined? How did you come into the subject matter? Was it through personal experience or observation? Tell us. Well, it was actually both, and I'll try to I'll try to answer quickly. But many, many, many years ago, I had agreed to some surgery, exploratory surgery that I knew I didn't need. I had recently switched medication, and I started having some vaginal bleeding. And the doctor said, "Oh my God!" And I said, "No, it has to be the the new medication." Obviously, it wasn't that tricky to me. He was sure that it wasn't anyway. So I I got scared, and so we had the surgery, and of course there was nothing, and. I, I was fine, and I went back on the old meds. Okay, great. So then many, about 25 or 30 years after that, I sold my business and retired. My husband and I had worked together, and I went back to school and took some anthropology classes, medical anthropology classes. And for some, for one of the classes, I did a project on women who had had hysterectomies. And I interviewed a bunch of women, and most, much to my surprise, many of them had agreed uh, had agreed to have the surgery, but they weren't sure they needed it. Oh, oh, so that oh, acted as a trigger me. for me. And I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, as women, how do we make our medical decisions? It brought yeah. it all back. So that's how I got into the book. I interviewed okay. 60 so, women and, you know, talked. I am one of those women that got a hysterectomy with just a, hey, what are you doing with all that stuff inside of you? Your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, your uterus, they're just cancer magnets. Right. Let's take right. them out. And I'm like, oh, okay. It was a <laughs> doctor. Yeah. And actually, in hindsight, he was right because a couple of years later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, stage three, and it would have spread. And so he saved my life. But uh, two things. Number one, I was amazed at how easily I just said, "Yes, oh, okay, yes. let's do that." <laughs> and the other thing that amazed me was every doctor I went to afterwards and showed medical history was like, oh, "You got a hysterectomy? <laughs> Why? Oh, you should sue that doctor!" And no. 
actually, he was really correct. I'm just amazed at how, with so much ease, right. I just can't do it. Right. Take all the junk out. You're right. So I want to talk about a broken medical care system. And I want to say that we've been talking about it before the show. I took three years to get Medicare. So here's what happened. I always had a really good business plan kind of healthcare. I was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, I had Medicare and whoever was the person in my office, and there were a lot of people, um, decided, what does she need Medicare for? She's on insurance without ever telling me they canceled my Medicare. Then it turns out you're fine, this exorbitant rate of money for every year you don't use Medicare, which made no sense to me. So when I, I tried to get it, I owed the government like $15,000, but, and I, we paid it, but it got screwed up and they didn't cash the check for a year. And by that time, I of course owed more. And it was COVID and there was no one working. And it actually took until two weeks ago when I tried to go to my my hospital, Mount Sinai, for an arthritic knee. And they claimed, you don't have any Medicare because Medicare, even though everything was straightened out, had never updated their files. So... <laughs> I am a woman that is not in any way psychologically or emotionally prepared to deal with this. So when you say it's a broken medical system, what do you mean by that? Because I'm basically looking at Medicare. Yeah, no. And I don't know much about Medicare because as I had mentioned earlier, I had no problem, but that was luck. I mean, it wasn't anything I did or didn't do. Trust me. Yeah. So you, you know good luck when you see it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I mean by a broken medical system is the gender bias that permeates it. And there's some good reasons for that. I have to, to be fair give to... Us, okay, Susan, give us an example okay. of gender bias, and then we can go into why you think the reasoning is that there's certain validity to it. What that's, is gender bias? That's a good question. I'll tell you about a study that was done where men and women were uh, given, had the same cardiac, this was a, a research study. I mean, it wasn't real, but they were given a, a medical uh, list of symptoms. They all, the men and the women had exactly the same symptoms and exactly the same risk factors for, car, for, a, cardi, for, cardiac, for a heart attack. And what happened was when the the researcher said, "Okay, here here's the list of symptoms. Tell tell us to, as doctors, tell us what you would recommend for these patients, these fictitious patients," and they all said, "Absolutely, a cardiac workup." Then they handed back the same papers to the same group. Only stress was mentioned that that the part the both the both the men and women had experienced some stress. As soon as stress was introduced, only fifteen percent of the women were recommended a cardiac workup. The rest were offered antidepressants. <gasps> so that tells you what gender bias is. The men, of course, were all recommended the, the same cardiac workups. So 
it's almost an antiquated point of view that, you know, we have it in government where women are too emotional, their hormones control their lives, therefore they shouldn't be governing, and yeah. Wow. So that's what I mean by gender bias. You know, when a woman and a man both go to the emergency hospital with heart attack symptoms, more women, even in 2023, more women are still offered antidepressants. In fact, just as a sidebar for all of your listeners, if you think you're having a heart attack, if there's, if it even enters your mind and you go to emergency, request an EKG. You must have an electrocardiogram. That's the only way way anybody, including the doctors, could know if you're experiencing a heart attack. Don't let them send you home with, oh, it's just stress or, oh, it's just a stomach ache. So you're saying also um, that women may make medical decisions that are very conflicted. And I know for me, it isn't so much about conflicted, but interestingly enough, when it comes to business, I always choose male partners. I don't know why, but I must see them. I must see men as more responsible with money, even though I have never experienced that. <laughs> and when it came to breast cancer, I chose a female clinic that only dealt in breast cancer, all female oncologists, all female doctors, all female surgeons, and all female um, uh, nurses So for chemo. So for me, very interesting, I wanted to be surrounded by that female energy for a female disease. Yeah. Had I gone to, and there's plenty of qualified hospitals for breast cancer in New York City, for sure. Um, But I didn't want to be in a male-dominated research clinic like Sloan Kittering. I wanted it to be all-female inclusive. I felt like they would understand me. Yes. And I wonder, you know, for me, it really worked out well, but I'm not going to tell you that that was scientifically based. And in your book, sidelined. It talks about how women make medical decisions very often more based on emotions rather than just clinical fact. True or not true? I think... I'm not sure I'd say emotions, but but you're you're mostly right. I think what I would say is that we've just been socialized to take care of others, and we're so intent uh-huh. on taking care of our children, our families, our parent, I mean whoever, that we put ourselves last. Which is why I mean literally why the airplanes will say you know put on your child's mask before you I mean put on your own mask before you put on your kids because we all take care of everybody but ourselves. We put yeah. nothing we don't take care of ourselves, but we're at the li- bottom of the list of our priorities. That and I think that, sure. Yeah, sure. I, was, I was always, I'm too busy. This pain I've got is nothing. Oh my God, the business needs me because my business was my child for sure. Right. So I'm going to ask you a very kind of out of pocket question. And we're talking about a broken medical system, which my experience with broken is Medicare. But now that Roe versus Wade has been 
taken away. And every single state has its own set of laws and its own set of decisions and its own draconian set of can-dos and can't, mostly cannot-dos. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to talk about how broken that system is? And then as a female, you are truly in a position where if if it's something you need and it's something that's really mortally life-threatening, you're on your own when it, it comes to defending yourself or directing your own medical care. I agree with you with every single thing you just said, and I the the, the that terrible case in Texas with where that woman um, who her baby was dead already or dying in utero and uh, her was at risk. I mean, oh my God! She's you know. still fighting it. She's going to have to leave Texas now. She I did. Mean, she left. She went there. Yeah, she went. Live there, she, yeah, not even lived. there anymore. Yeah. So. I feel like not only um, are we seeing gender bias, period, um, but now, I mean, when it comes to your own female organs and the choices you make, the bias is overwhelming. I mean, it's, and I wonder if these women that are in question, like that lady from Texas, I'm just very curious, and I'm going to look it up after this podcast. Do they hire male lawyers to defend them or female lawyers? Do they go to male House of Representatives and Senate members, or do they go to females? I really, that's a big question to ask, because to me, that is a whole section of the medical community that's just in insane. Yeah, it is insane. I think there's a couple of things to understand that I think are important. First of all, um, I, I don't want to, I, I don't think that, that that either of us really mean that all men are bad and all women are good. I don't, I mean, oh, that's no, not, I mean, I know. Absolutely no, I know it isn't. Yeah. In fact, I do, I do want to interject this. One of the questions I'm asked probably the most frequently is, as women, should we go to a male doctor or a female doctor? And it's really? interesting. Yeah, that's, that's always my first question. You're shaking your head. It's so obvious to you to go to a female one, you mean? No. I, I mean, to me, um, first of all, I'm almost 80 years old. I take no medication at all. And I try to do everything through diet and exercise and attitude. So you I'm look not- fantastic. I have to interject. You look. Fa- you took me totally aback. Oh my God! You look fabulous. You. Fabulous. You. So I I try to do it through healthy and logical eating, and I try personally to avoid the medical community, which is part of the reason why I got in trouble and got, you know, stayed Yeah, Diane, that's not a good idea. To begin with. Don't do that. But um, I got a female GP. I got it through a friend of mine. And uh, here in New York, they make you sign these concierge programs where that's a doctor you go to for a year and blah, blah, blah. And 
I don't necessarily love that doctor and she's female. And yeah. I thought, well, female to female, it's going to be like the experience I had in the breast cancer clinic, Jubin at Mount Sinai. But no, there's no camaraderie at no. all. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to bring up. Because when I began the book, the research said it really didn't matter whether you went to a male or female doctor, that it, it depends on the relationship. The latest research does suggest that women are better off with a female doctor. But now that I've said that, I must tell you that I have one doctor, a cardiologist as a matter of fact, that is a man, spends an hour with me. Did you hear me? An hour. That's unheard of in 2022. Totally. Yeah, he, he wants to know how I am and he, we talk. I have another doctor that's a female and she says, hi, how are you? And I go, fine. And we go right into the whatever. It, I mean, she couldn't care less. So it, it just it, depends on the doctor. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, um, uh, from running for years and probably not wearing the correct kind of orthotic shoes, yeah, um, I have uh, arthritis in a knee. And when I went and found out I would be a candidate for a gel shot, which is really great, um, you're avoiding surgery, who did I choose? Female. Yeah. A female yeah. doctor. I must have a thing where I like a sisterhood around me. Well, I do too. I think we all do, as I, I think so. But I do want to make the point that I don't think, in, and I'm, I'm really talking to you directly, don't avoid the doctors. Just pick your doctors more carefully yeah. so that you're com more comfortable with whatever they tell you. Because otherwise you end up with stage three instead of perhaps stage one, let's just you say. You know, I just didn't have anybody around me who kept saying, you have got to go get a sonogram right now. And finally, I went to a male doctor who had taken care of a problem for me from the waist down. And he said, I don't handle waist up, but I don't like what I'm seeing. And you got to get a sonogram immediately. And I did. I don't have a problem taking yeah. directions from male or female. Good. Good. But um, I, I just see that I tend to always go for female because I figure, yeah. you know, we've all got the same hormones. We're all going through some stage of the same right. thing. Right. And there must be a baseline understanding there that possibly a male won't ever have. And interesting, when I was younger, because I was born in 1945, there were no female doctors. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There were only male doctors, only male dentists. And so, um, I don't know, maybe I didn't, as a child, maybe I didn't like my experiences with do those doctors <laughs> yeah. and I, you know, kind of drifted over. So you talk about the fact that females always put others first and are too quick to put off their own health care. You think that that is a totally female thing totally female no because i'm sure that there are some men some fathers that are predominantly yeah right and, and equally devoted but do i think it's a cultural thing for women absolutely we're taught to play nice we're taught to you know put ourselves last it's our jobs to take care of our families women all over the world do like 80 some odd percent of the of the caretaking in the world not just in our country i mean it's just it's it's 
been that way for for ages. Um, And I don't think it's going to change. And I think that as women, as individual women, we really need to learn to say, I come first. And the reason I'm saying that, not because I'm selfish and I love my children dearly, but if I don't, if I don't feel well, if I'm feeling like crap, how in the hell am I going to take care of my, my family? You know, you're irritated, you're tired, you just want to go back to bed. And so I think that how I feel directly affects the quality of my caretaking. I mean, it has to. How interesting, you know, and, and I never thought about it that way. But you say something else, that um, women focus more on the emotional aspects of their illness when discussing symptoms. But when it comes to recovery, they take almost the opposite tact. And I remember when I got diagnosed, my first concern was, of course, surviving. But I did it through an emotional aspect. I said to myself, okay, they say that if you don't have a supportive mate or a supportive family system, you're not going to do well. So I thought to myself, you know, I don't, oh my God, I'm not going to survive because I don't have the emotional support. I need. It never occurred to me I wouldn't have the medical support. Um, I knew the whole reputation of the clinic I was going to, and it was fantastic. But it was, oh my God. If and I realized, honey, Diane, you are on your own. You cannot afford to be in a bad mood. You cannot afford to be (laughs) negative. You cannot afford to scream at yourself about doom and gloom. You got to be your own cheerleader. And I think that is probably very common that you sort of suck it in and keep it to yourself and try and deal with it. Did you consider joining a support group? No. No, no, because I, um, they did something at Jubin um, Breast Cancer Center, Mount Sinai, that was very interesting. <clears throat> they had volunteers who had gone through breast cancer and mastectomy or lumpectomy or whatever come in and they volunteered their time to talk to you. And what I found was I didn't want to be constantly rehashing the disease. I wanted what was important for me was to map out my future. So I didn't want to be in a situation where we were just talking about the disease and the disease and the disease. And then there was another weird part of me that said, if you are truly emotionally strong, you don't need to share this with people. And so I, I chose to compact myself and take care of it on my own. But I don't think that's everybody. And I did pretty well. 
Yeah. What I what I love about what you're saying, because I mean, I would be, I have to tell everybody, I mean, that's the difference between us. I would have, I mean, I just, you asked me how I am and, you know, I, <laughs> I say, how much time do you have? Because I'll tell you everything. But I think what's really important is that you thought it through. You decided what was best for you. And I think that's the point of my book is that we're in charge of our own health. And you, 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 you took charge. You took charge of yourself. My way of taking charge would have been to tell my family, or if I didn't have one, join a support group. But I mean, we each have our own way. What you choose is much less important than your ability to make the choice. And I think that that's a really, really important thing. The The interesting thing, too, was I had no major issues with anything surrounding taking chemo or getting a double mastectomy. And two things occurred. And the first thing was, um, when I got the double mastectomy, I was given a ton of Oxycontin. And I said, I'm not taking this. I'm not taking it. And I was told by a female doctor that I was a complete masochist. Like I was mentally (laughs) not to take drugs that would soften it all but i didn't want to take anything that was addictive and i frankly i think i took half of one and i thought this is stupid this just puts me to sleep that's not a solution right at all and then the other thing that was a big challenge for me where i had to make a major decision that I'm still not comfortable with, but I, again, was all alone, was the after treatment for breast cancer is often drugs like tamoxifen, and they are very deleterious to your body, to I know. your mind. They, I don't know what I do. It's a big choice. Yeah, where I had very, very, very little problem with chemotherapy, thank God, I went through, they only offered three drugs after drugs, and they said it really, really helped uh, to lessen the chance cancer would come back. And I had no tolerance to any of them and no tolerance. They created horrible arthritic pain. And I said, I'm going to wind up in a wheelchair. And nobody had a solution. And no one seemed to care. And once again, as a female, I was left on my own to come to terrible conclusion that I was going to have to take care of myself and not take these drugs because the quality of life issue was just gargantuan between being able to walk and sit without extreme pain or get rid of these pills and be ambulatory, but now what? And so then I did some research as a female and found that regular exercise was almost as effective as taking these pills. So I would say to women, you've got to really get proactive. You are with your children. Right. You're always right. pushing your husband around. Go do this. Go do that. Go to the doctor. I don't right. like hearing this. But with ourselves, 
we very often wind up having to be our own counselors. And honestly, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Let's talk about exercise just for a, a split second. Yeah. With you, I think that if, if I if people have asked me, I'm 81, and people have wow. asked, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll surprise you, I know, <laughs> but people have said to me, and I only take blood pressure medication. That's genetic. My folk, both my parents had it, so I'm not on any meds either. Um, and I think that exercise is the. If you asked me what's the most important thing you can do for old age, I would say prepare for it, and by that I mean exercise. I walk like I'm 20. Um, I, I'm, I'm in very good shape. I do weightlifting. I do Pilates. I don't walk as much as I should because I get so bored, but I try, you know. Um, and I think it's just really helped help me keep my health under control. So I, think, well, yeah, but, you know. I think exercise has to couple with diet because my biggest yeah. gripe with the medical system in America is it takes care of problems with drugs after the problem manifests when they could just sit down with you. And this is something Mount Sinai actually did that I so respect. And they said, look, you want to eat red meat? It's carcinogenic. You want to smoke? It's carcinogenic. And they went down, you want to drink hard alcohol every night? It's carcinogenic. They went down a whole list of, if you want to do this, be responsible for yourself because you're not going to get good results. And if you can take care of this or delete it from your reality, you're going to do much better. So I say that my number one gripe with the medical community as a whole is they are not preventative. They, They are reactive. And if you really want to lead a great life going into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, you have got to be so unbelievably proactive Mm -hmm. in your life. Like I'm just switching over to being vegetarian. So it's two days a week, three days a week, then four days a week is about my limit. Um, But... (laughs) You know, I find that listening to my body, my body likes it. And I have to say for your book, Sidelined, I am so shocked that women are prescribed more drugs than men. And as a final question, do you think that's because women just allow that to happen? Or women think that because they're They've got a reproductive body. It's gone through more wear and tear and it needs those drugs. Because my answer to those drugs are always the same. If I can deal with it through diet and exercise, I'll say to a doctor, give me six months. I had real blood pressure issues. Yeah, I was eating a pint of ice cream a night. Okay, I get it. (laughs) And And it came back to normal. But what do you think makes this happen where the female portion of our society is more prone to taking a bunch of defensive drugs rather than self-correcting. Well, I don't know that we're more prone to. I think that the reason for 
us perhaps being getting prescribed more medication is number one, we go to the doctor more often than men do. So that, you know, you, if you go with a, with a symptom, they're going to offer you a drug. That's the point of yeah. it. For them. Yeah. And yeah. I think secondly, we have more diseases. For example, we suffer from anxiety and depression more than men do. So hence we're prescribed more antidepressants, et cetera. So I think that's probably a good reason. Both of those are good reasons. Um, and men are more specific when they go to the doctor. They go in for a particular symptom or particular illness. Whereas when women go to the doctor, we go for a particular symptom. But if, if you're at all like me, I tell them the whole story. I don't just say I have a sore throat. I go in and my throat hurts. I have no energy. I can't pick up my kids. I can't do this. I can't do that because I feel like crap again. So I, they, they, of course, are going to give me one or more medications to help with all of those symptoms, whereas men are just more, what's the word, succinct. I don't know how to be succinct. You know, that, it's interesting you say, and just in closing on this podcast, which has been so fascinating, <clears throat> I never complained about chemotherapy. I just understood from the first infusion Oh, okay. I think we know who's in charge here. Chemotherapy's yeah. in charge. Right. And I better see what all the parameters and the rules are. I went through my treatment with another executive within my company who was going through prostate cancer and going through chemo. And he was constantly suffering and oh. complaining and oh. needing pills and needing this and needing that. And I asked the doctor about it, my doctor, and she said, men do not take treatment. The women tend to suck it up yeah. and deal with it. And men tend to complain about it because they know that a woman is going to come to their rescue and say, oh dear, what can I do for you? Let me make you pudding for dessert or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, and I so do agree with the fact that it's a broken medical system and navigating it. I'll tell you what, Susan, you need to almost be a genius. So final yeah. remark, what would you say? I would say two things. Number one, absolutely, as, as you have done so, take charge of your health. It's your body. You've only got one body and yeah. take care of it and advocate for it. And as a subset under that, I think it's really important to do your own research so that you know what to expect. Does, does the diagnosis, use your intuition. Does it fit you? Does it... I, I'll just tell you a quick story and if, cut me off if, if we don't have time. But you have to have, you have to take charge of yourself. I woke up one morning with a very painful thumb and I've never had pain. I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones. So I, of course, thought it was bone cancer because that's what I, that's who I am. So I, I, anyway, I ran to the doctor and it turned out to be arthritis of the thumb. And she gave me, you know, so she prescribed some meds for the pain. And so I thought, to, I said this, I'm on Lexapro. My husband recently passed away. Yeah. So I am on an antidepressant. Okay. And I said, well, it interfere with the Lexapro? And she said, absolutely not. No problem. So I come home and I research I the thumb medication versus the Lexapro. And there was a 1% chance of interaction, only 1%. I mean, she was 99% correct, but the 1% uh -huh. was a brain bleed. 
Now, if you're in the 1% and you've got a sore thumb, I'd rather have a sore thumb, wouldn't you? You know, so, I mean, I threw yeah, out of the net and the thumb is fine. But my point is, if I hadn't done the research, if I hadn't taken charge, I would have exposed myself to really an unnecessary risk, a small risk. But if you're, as I said, if you're in the 1%, you're screwed. So that's that's my answer. Take charge of yourself with knowledge, which is the yeah, reason. Yeah, and, and I'm going to end this by saying that part of what the problem is with the medical system being broken, and I'll tell my own quick story, and I'm sure our producer is going crazy saying that. <laughs> but um, what somebody said to me, because I didn't get a huge detailed diagnosis on my knee, I just got, oh my God, your knee is riddled with arthritis, we can take care of it with gel. So somebody says to me afterwards, well, did your orthopedic doctor sit down with you and discuss all the options? I said, are you, are you crazy? I said, I go to Mount Sinai, I sit there in the waiting room for an hour, they call my name, they say, get undressed, I wait about an hour, undressed, she comes in with needles, says, I can devote exactly 17 minutes to you, maximum, gives me the shot, never explains ever anything, and as she's walking out, says, you'll feel better in about three and a half weeks. That's oh, it. Lord. That is the medical system today. Everything is timed, everything is choreographed, and everything is so cut and dry when in fact no one's life is that cut and dry. Look, we could go on forever with this. True. You know what, audience? It is a broken medical system and you find that out as you get older. But hopefully as you get older, you also have time. <laughs> or more self-care, more self-reflection right. about it, and more gauged action. So, Susan Salinger, a great book, sidelined. Nothing could be truer than how broken our medical system yeah. is. And thank you so much for this podcast today. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to Too Young to Be Old podcast. The episode may be over, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The Diane Gilman, or visit our website, thedianegilman.com. If you like the show, leave us a rating or a review, and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And until then, don't forget, Age is just a number. Together, we'll prove that we are all too young to be old. <laughs>